Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, Feelin' Film listeners. I'm Aaron, and here with me for the first in a new monthly series of episodes covering classic films is Don Shanahan, Feelin' Film contributor and movie critic at Every Movie Has a Lesson. Good evening, folks. Good to have you here. Over the past year or so, Don and I have found ourselves frequently discussing the merit of classic film and championing it in our Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. So we decided what better way to bring attention to those great movies of old than to have a conversation about them. Since we really want this series to result in you, the listeners, watching more classic films, we are going to encourage you by making this a participatory event where you can win cool stuff. To accomplish this, we will be hosting prize drawings for podcast swag and more at the end of each calendar year. Entries into the drawing can be earned for every episode by watching the film and posting your own review or thoughts about the podcast in the comments section of the episode announcement post in that Feel and Film Facebook discussion group. For listeners who do not wish to be a part of the discussion group, you can always email us your reviews or thoughts at feelandfilm at gmail.com, and that will also be accepted. With all that said, let's get right to the first review, shall we? For this first episode, we're pairing it with the recent episode that we did on The Post, because these two films are so closely connected, as in literally shot-for-shot connected at one point. All the President's Men is number 77 on the AFI Top 100 10th anniversary list, which is what Don and I will be working from for a while. So Don, I am excited to be doing this with you. I love that you came up with this idea and pushed me to make this happen. I think that your incredible film knowledge and great analysis are going to be a real treat for the listeners. So man, why don't you just kick us off and get us started? Tell us what you thought of this movie. Well, first and foremost, uh, I got to send a, a big thank you back to you as well. Um, thank you very much for just the discussion group on Facebook. Um, all the uh, regular followers and stuff really pushed you and I both to really thinking about classic film. And I, I love the conversations that have got us started on this new uh, little mini-zode kind of adventure here a little bit. Um, I promise I can say the word masterpiece, you not punch myself in the face or whatever. So um, really, we're, we're going to really enjoy these episodes because we get to talk about the real McCoy for a change. So for this film, absolutely. I think we're dealing with one here where when it comes to political thrillers and especially journalism films and uh, the filmography of Alan Pacula, I think we've, I mean, I think we've got an unquestioned masterpiece in our hands here with all the president's men. I think it justifies its existence because of um, just so many reasons where the film, I know we're going to talk about this later where we, where we first encountered it and where we go from here, but just watching it this past weekend and, and bring it, bringing it fresh, it, it really is just a, an engaging film. Um, it immerses you in just the detail of what they're looking for. It immerses you in the detail of the craft of the filmmaking to show it to you with a, with an observational eye. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of inlaid kind of voyeurism in this film it, it, where I think a different cheekier version of this film turns into the office where everyone kind of knows the camera's there. Or there's a lot of preening or there's a lot of speechifying or, or where if there's a shot for shot difference from where we're pairing this with a post, I think with the post, you have a lot of, you know, very deliberate setups and very deliberate scenes that are meant to kind of be showy places for very, very good actors. In this, I feel like we're really watching the natural efforts of these guys at work where you forget you're watching Rift. So no, I think the film is, um, it's a slow boil. It's a slow build, but I think it's something that 
I think people can find a whole lot of value in, especially when we're going to kind of think of it as a spiritual sequel of sorts to the post. Um, how did you feel about it? You know, in, in that same kind of first impression or matching to the show kind of way, Aaron? Well, I would say that it has definitely grown on me over time. I know that you and I have actually talked about that and we both feel pretty much similar in that regard where mm -hmm. this wasn't one we took to immediately. And I actually questioned for a long time that this was a masterpiece. And I thought, ah, yeah. Yeah, maybe not. This is, this isn't very exciting. And it's mm -hmm. taken me getting older and I think appreciating film in general more to understand that exciting does not necessarily mean better. Uh, yeah. that, that, what is special about all the president's men in particular is that it's not filmed in an overly exciting manner. Um, it's right. not manipulative in that way. So I, I had a huge journalism background as far as what I desired to do with my life. I wanted to be an editor newspaper at one, uh, editor of a newspaper at one time, uh, for my, my career. That's probably not going to happen now that newspapers are <laughs> pretty much going the way of the dinosaur. But, uh, you know, I really enjoy watching this kind of movie. And this is as good of an example as we have ever gotten in cinema of just seeing that inner working of a newsroom. And that's what I gravitate toward even more than the story itself, more than the sure. political nature of the importance of it. And let's, let's not kid ourselves. Like we can throw that important word around when we talk about this movie. Very much so. I mean, a president resigned um, because mm -hmm. of, in this film so yeah i i've it's grown on me and i'm excited to kind of talk more about why and why what makes it so amazing yeah i'm right there with you um i had the same kind of personal history with the film where um i i, I can't pinpoint what saw it i'm i'm almost certain it had to be in college um i same here i had a high interest in journalism you know like seven, in seventh grade i thought i was clark kent you know i was gonna <laughs> light the world on fire and be that guy that you know we grow up to be a reporter and all that but um i admit i'm this we were about the same age where i got to college and i realized that journalism w was really on its way out you can see where the web was going and um i chose being a school teacher and that's perfectly fine but i was still um a reporter and editor for my high school newspaper for my college newspaper and it turned into the film criticky dorky stuff i do now but um by having that high interest in journalism um uh, I, I wanted the film to ping to me, but I felt it was kind of, it was boring at first light because I mean, we, even in the present and even in the college we, in which we came to, you know, this is very analog journalism. You know, this is, this is slow, methodical, kind of hardcore, real deal stuff. And I didn't know what that was. I never had to do that. You know, um, I was blessed to have, you know, Photoshop, Photoshop and print shop, printmaker, page maker, I should say, to put a newspaper together in college. And even in high school where we kind of had a dark room and kind of had like, cutting papers and brayers and in wax to put things down it really wasn't all that labor intensive in terms of where these guys are really we, we weren't digging for stories in high school newspapers the way these guys are digging for watergate scandal so when i saw it i i, I too i wasn't impressed i, I it, this one had to grow on me a lot where when i thought of think you know a history part of it um it was hard to care because it wasn't my history you know, I, I was in college in the 90s and 2000s where Columbine and OJ and, and like 24-hour news scandals were kind of my history or so. I was used to something in a film form that was more flashier and bolder. And, you know, my my benchmark for flashy, bold and, and, and inspire me political thriller-wise is JFK. JFK is my – you're asking me to put political thrillers on a chart. JFK is my number one because it isn't my history, but boy, does it bring and immerse you in it so well. Mm -hmm. You want to know, you want to follow. And that way that the film is edited and chopped and put together. Like I, once I want, once I saw all the president's men, I'm like, Oh, that, that's, that's it. Huh? I mean, I get why it's important, but now that I can step in and see 
what it all meant and the topicality and where they came from. It it just it, it does grow. Um, it, it's greatness grows and the acting shines through so much better because if if there's a place where we're going to compare with JFK to this, um, the performances in this film are way better than anything that's in JFK. You know, I mean, there's a lot of big ensemble stuff in JFK, but nothing on the powerhouse level of what Redford, Hoffman, um, Robards are doing here. I want to come back to that and maybe we'll, we'll lead with that after this, but you know, this is, so we're, we're choosing this list of AFI top 100 films to use because we feel like it's a pretty good representation. We've also set kind of an arbitrary bar for ourselves of, Uh of, of what did we say? 30 Uh years. We said 30 years, right? So 30 years, I believe. We're going to say the film has to be over 30 years for us to cover it uh, as we start working our way through. And there are some interesting stats. And I really want to make sure we we kind of capture that for these sure. older movies. Like what's, what was the awards picture like for this one? Like mm-hmm. what, what makes this a classic in, in your mind? And do you have some of that data? Because you're the, you're the data guy. I am data guy. So I'm, <laughs> I'll, I'll start with the kind of the easy numbers first and then I'll go to kind of significance. So um, uh, you, as you said in the opening, this is uh, AFI's number 77 out of 100 of American film. Um, in 2010, it made the National Film Registry from the Library of Congress as one of those, you know, culturally and nationally important films. Um, d- diving a little deeper into the way AFI broke down its list years ago, this is also number 34 on its inspiring list. It's also number 57 on its thrilling list. And thrilling? the characters of Wolf- series? 57 on its thrilling list. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I find that hard. Now, I got to go find that list and be like, all right, what's one through 56? Because 56 better be non-pulse rate racing norm, you know, for 57 to be less. So, um, and then finally, Woodward and Bernstein are number 27 on their heroes list. And that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I'll, I can give them that for sure. It was nominated for eight Oscars, won four of them. Um, we'll talk about Robards a ton here. It was winning Best Supporting Actor. He ended up repeating the very same award the very next year for a film named Julia. It won for Best Sound, Best Art Direction, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It lost Best Picture and Best Director to Rocky um, in one of the most loaded Best Picture races I've ever seen in history where you had all the President's Men, you had Rocky, you had Taxi Driver, you had Network, and then some random some fifth film, but... That's a widowmaker group of five. Literally an upset. Like it, it yeah. the upset of Rocky became the upset of the best picture of that year because Oh, I very much so. And, and don't know yeah, all the presence men was the early favorite. You know, you know how um the same award cycle we're in the process of now, uh, especially with the post. Um the post the kind of the inaugural films that open up the awards race are the National Board of Review. And so the MBR gave the best picture this past year here to the post. And we thought, all right, topical era of Trump. I mean that film on paper, the post, you know, it's, this was early December before most people saw it, it you know, it, um, especially since it's arriving in theaters now, it felt like the right for the right time and definitely, a, you know, a, a safe and efficient and competent choice to win Best Picture. And same thing for all the presidents men. It won uh, the Best Picture for the National Board of Review it, when it ended up winning the Best Picture for the, Na- the New York Film Critics uh, Circle, who's also one of the first big groups to name their awards. And then it kind of faded like um we here come you know the the american post-vietnam feel of rocky became this can't miss film that you know america embraced and never let go and it became the the ura movie that won so now don't get me wrong i mean i i call rocky a classic and a masterpiece and all that so it, it, especially when you consider that you know you have scorsese's taxi driver their network can, in any other year can can win any of those categories so it was a crazy year and um so for it to kind of hang through and be that on the stat line is is still pretty impressive. I mean, uh, 
by winning four, it tied uh, with, um, I want to say, Network for winning the most awards at the Oscars that year because Rocky only won two. Um, it won director and picture, and that's it. So it didn't even win Gonna Fly Now for best song. So kind of a crazy year for sure. Yeah, that's that is just wacky. I, you know, I Patrick would hurt me for saying that because, of course, Patrick is a huge Rocky fan, my film film co-host, and he loves that series, and I, I can understand why. But yeah, watching this back, I I just have some doubts about <laughs> that year. Man, man, what a powerhouse! Yeah. So the the film is is also based on a book, and I think mm-hmm. we agree that one of the really important things about this is how it had a sense of urgency to the story being told. This was filmed a year after Nixon's resignation and a year before the rights of the books. What what was it? $450,000. I think is what it cost them. Yeah. Which back then Redford paid for. Yeah, definitely a lot. Um, I'm sorry. Redford paid uh, 450 grand for the rights to the book because he's, you know, kind of an emerging filmmaker kind of guy because this would end up being four years before he did Ordinary People as a filmmaker himself. So he's that guy who's a producer kind of guy. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, so just a year after, year after Nixon's resignation, a year after, um, Redford bought the rights to the book, here comes the movie. So two years after the events, um, not an era later, we've seen how many great historical films do we see? that remind us of forgotten history where this mm-hmm. was still fresh, you know, yeah, just two years old, super rare. I mean, e- even so the post is obviously the same time period. Now here it's 2017 telling mm-hmm. a story that happened mere months to a year, you know, a, oh, in yeah. connection with this one, we did have, we had spotlight recently win best picture. And that one was I think 12 years ish removed from the events yep. uh, that took place. And then the only one that I could come up with was sure. zero dark 30 which I think came out yeah. within a year or two after Bin Laden's actual uh-huh. assassination uh, once we yeah. got him. So that one had some timeliness to it, which, and it has its own story about Oscars and mm-hmm. craziness too. But uh, yeah, so this is sure. just, it's just not very common for this to happen. No, it sure isn't. I'm spotlight. I'll definitely bring it up later in terms of where, you know, cause we're going to talk about journalism films and where things rank and where things land and all that, especially where we're talking about the post. But yeah, the, the, the topicality and urgency is huge with this film. And, um, what, what, what makes it even stronger is the fact that, um, when this was first kind of written for the screen, it was, it kind of really went Hollywood, so to speak. Like they really went with like, um, Nora Ephron was one of the first screenwriters they brought in, uh, which we, I laugh at because that's kind of your, your romantic comedy guru lady. Um, and it's kind of funny because William Goldman ends up being the guy winning the Oscar for adaptive screenplay here. Right. And William Goldman, uh, the Princess Bride. Bride. It, for yeah. The years, if you didn't realize that, that is something very interesting in film history to know is mm-hmm. that the man who wrote the book and the movie, The Princess Bride, also one for this this film and then i think you told me he yeah what, what did we do? we said uh butch cassidy and sundance kid is also a credit of his yep so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The, the guy's got some range in terms of what he can put <laughs> on paper and it's pretty impressive but um i, I guess the the efron script uh that was initially in place kind of went more hollywood like changed a lot of facts about the book tried to make something a little more thrilling and i and and golden was brought in to bring this back down to realism and accuracy in terms of the portrayal of journalism and recounting the investigations and actual activities like even some of the lines that deep throat has are coming right out of you know, Woodward's Burke, I guess the, I guess the one notable line that I guess was never really said in history, but makes the film kind of push and go is the, is the follow the money line that, uh, Deep Throat gives, uh, Woodward's character. And I guess that's a, that's 
that's a scripted creation to kind of be a composite line to where all the nudging and urging was going with in terms of the character and the history of all that. So other uh, than that, okay. um, I like that. Oh because yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're an understanding. Because that's one of the things about the script that can be a turnoff to people. I think is this movie does not hold your hand at all. No, we start talking all. about these words. Deep backgrounds start getting thrown around, and it, it, there's no mm-hmm. pause and text on the screen that says deep background and a definition. Like they yeah, just not talk. a single. It just comes out in normal yeah. dialogue, and you have to engage with the film. You have to actually mm-hmm. invest your attention to it, and you'll figure it out along the way. But it doesn't. And that's another right another now. crazy layer to that mystery is the is that the fact that you know we didn't learn who Deep Throat was till what. 10 years ago. So not only we're we doing this very topical urgency two years later film, you're one of the, the, one of the huge characters that the film hinges on is an absolute mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a person who exists that became this, you know, moniker of deep throat that has since historically been just, you know, well, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? So the number one question that the movie creates won't be answered for you in any kind of way. You know, this is all just retelling of what it could have should is and 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 some of those level things where the people who step away step away from this movie and, and step back into the history of where the film where the film stops and history continues, they still don't get questions answered. I think if you had a film like this today and you had some, you know, uh, a borderline composite character like Deep Throat, it wouldn't play. No, people wouldn't believe you. They're like, no, there's not this guy in a parking garage who's given them every single morsel of secrets. We would we would find that impossible and implausible. But that's the journalism of that era. That's the deep background. That's what you're talking about. And and it's funny you mentioned. I love it. Just it just triggering because you're talking about that parking garage. Every time we were in the parking garage, because of my history with nowadays film with modern movies, every single time I was waiting for a shootout, I was waiting for a car to right. squeal off in the background. And something crazy to happen because we don't know how to just sit there and have people talk to each other. That's crazy talk. You know, that's, that's not normal for Mm us. Um, the interesting, another interesting thing. Well, before we get off the deep background and deep, deep throat, the scene, probably the funniest scene in the movie to me is in Robar's office when they tell him the name and he goes, like really deep throat. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember the guy's name, but the, uh, the other character, the hey, I don't gosh I don't know what his role is because he's not the oh uh, Martin Balsams yeah yes um, he's like you can see it on his face like he knows it's stupid and he's like I gave him that name because he knows mm-hmm. he's in a deep background and he's like he's like very clearly in on the joke of his own oh, yeah. mess up it's just I just love the way that scene plays out for me it's the yeah, funniest it's moment of the movie but um, especially with the way that Ben Bradley is presented and and I know you're gonna power through with the Robard stuff but um just it. he is you know a, a cool cucumber and a and a on you know and a just uh you know a cucumber a, a cool cucumber wrapped in steel you know so for him to kind of you know poke that out and have that moment but at the same time roll with it and go all right still you know we're on this we're on this so yeah I mean that's magic of Robards too well let's let's touch on him because he was the Oscar winner from this one you said he mm-hmm. won the best supporting actor and he did. I want to, I'm going to ask a quick question. We don't have to say too much about this for those who haven't seen the post, but because we now have a comparable performance from another Mm -hmm. all time great actor in Tom Hanks, how do you feel about the two different portrayals? And I I will say, let me frame this before you answer for the listeners Mm -hmm. in that those of you who have not seen the post, 
they are two different performances. They are different performances for different styles of film. The post is much more actiony, kind of pushes you along. It's it's more in that thriller-ish range than this is to me. So they're trying to play different in different ways. But which one Mm. did you would you say works for you better? Robards. You know, um, I think we've seen Hanks play, the, and I say it in my post review where I, I'm not a, I'm not a super duper huge awesome post fan. So for me, um, it's Robards because Robards just commands that room with so little effort and with just that, the feet on the desk, the facial expressions, the the steely delivery of lines. I liked that guy, man of few words, but man of all action, a lot more than. Then Tom Hanks being the, you know, the, the encouraging chatty Cathy that he sometimes can be because it, it's, it's a part that Hanks can play in his sleep. And I, I hate to say that all the time about the, about the last uh, six films he's been in, but Hanks is getting to the point where he's, he picks great projects and he picks fine films and all that, but he, I don't know, it, it's too safe and too easy of a part for him. So I think more layers and depth come out of what Robards does with it than Hanks for me. Yeah. How about I, you? I would agree 100%. And I wouldn't have thought that coming out of the post until I rewatched All the President's Men. Yeah. In that, I really enjoy Hank's performance. But the difference to me is that Hank's is the one in charge of, he feels more like our main character. He is a, he is, and I guess that's yeah. the point. He's a lead, right? He's yeah. a leading actor in the post. Whereas sure. Ben Bradley, whereas Robards is a supporting actor. Robards is not the star because the, the most screen time we're focusing in on Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. He's in the background. He's more of an editor and managing things, in my opinion. Yeah. Then what we see from Hanks is kind of the guy who's having all of the pressure on him. And I just think that Robards plays it in, in such, he looks and feels to me more like what you imagine of an sure. editor. And he captures everything without any gravitas at all. So mm-hmm. Hanks has a couple of moving speech moments where they're rousing and they're like you said, they're moving Tom Hanks speech moments. Robards yeah. has an equivalent one that we'll talk about later that mm-hmm. is like he just literally walked onto the set and just said it and then went to bed. Yeah. You know, like right. he, he's not trying to over dramatize it and it comes yeah. out. It works perfectly. So. I think if I was for my money, I, I give it to Robards as well. And uh, prior mm. prior to this, I never actually paid much attention. Like he didn't stick out to me. Maybe that's because I didn't no. realize who Ben Bradley was, and the post did that for me. So I love the sure. synergy of the two movies. Yeah, I, I still think they make for a heck of a double feature to put the two together because you you can kind of go from um you can go from the 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 because I mean the post would come before the, all the presidents men. So you have this. You know, um, inspiring, you know, um, foundation laying, you know, patriotism of sorts that comes out of the post. And then you have that, that patriotism forced to be sharpened and focused into this bigger story of this bigger thing. Like the Pentagon Papers were a big deal for sure. Um, but at the same time about the post, you're watching kind of the most artful version of a second place finisher you'll ever get because the, the, the real breakers of the Pentagon Papers were the New York Times. And to watch the post keep chasing the New York Times all throughout Steven Spielberg's film, for them to kind of come at the end and still kind of be the savior is good. But then, then you get to see that what Ben Bradley picked up and learned in the post can become the grizzle that is necessary and required of distance or at least or of even just if not so much distance, I should say, but just the 
the focus, I'll say again, that is necessary in all the presence men that I think it goes together. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I love it. And I think that in the post as well, he, Hanks's character is trying to make a decision for themselves, for the paper. Yeah. And for almost, he's more playing watchdog for the nation, whereas mm-hmm. Bradley is uh, in the All the President's Men, Robards' version, is very personal focused. There's yeah. that great line where he says, let's stand by our boys when mm-hmm. everything great is at the line. lowest point, point, right? And th- that doesn't yeah. happen in the post because it's not about standing behind your guys as much as it is as a group. They already were together. But right. in this, Bradley has to do that as a leader, as an overseer, as a yeah. support system, as a central nervous system. Sure. The whole paper. But so, if yeah, you, if you, it's great. Yeah. If you continue, if you put the two arcs together, you, you, you're right on it where you, the idea that the, where do I, I mean, especially for the Ben Bradley we learned about in the post, who was a very big Kennedy supporter. And here all of a sudden is this big chink coming into the armor of Kennedy and every president for those five presidents for the Pentagon papers. But you have Ben Bradley reach this momentous stick to the principle, stick to the paper, support the paper decision in the post. And maybe the hard, um, the hardness of the difficulty of that experience. Once you now go a few years later to all the president's men, maybe that disillusionment inside his own heart has grown. Like, wow, we hurt. We've now learned all this horrible things about our government from the Pentagon Papers and from the inklings of what has been bad in Vietnam. And now that the next domino could fall with Watergate, that forces him from the nation that he loves and the paper that he loves to to be even more, like you said, grizzled with his own his own personal toughest, but at the same time, stronger resolution to the bigger cause, which at this point now is not just the paper, but you're right. Those boys, the people, you know, yeah. I, I think, I think you're seeing, yeah, I, I keep using the analogy. I think you're seeing a sharpening thing. He was already really sharp in the post because he's a smoothie, you know, he's Tom Hanks, but now you're seeing, you know, razor sharp. No, we're on it and we're going to get it right. And yeah, you know, like you said, the double checking and the things that are going to come along with his detail apart here. And it's funny because we're, we're going on and on about Robards, but you know, the arc, when you put these two films together, he's kind of your connective tissue. Almost like your, oh, he's the connective, he's connective tissue. tissue. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to say he's like Darth Vader, you know, where we, we learn a lot about Luke and we learn a lot about this and that, but you're, you know, emerging always there guy, your connective tissue is still Darth Vader. And uh, it's a terrible analogy, but you know, Ben Bradley's Darth Vader. Nixon, I am your father. So no about those boys, right? Let's stand by yeah. boys. So we have, Two incredible all-time greats, oh, in Dustin Hoffman yeah. and Robert Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Here's my read on these guys. Okay. I had a hard time at first liking them mm-hmm. and, and, and appreciating them, kind of like the whole film for me. But now I just absolutely love them, and I think that they make such a phenomenal pairing. And the reason oh, yeah. is because of the balance they bring. They are so opposite mm-hmm. on two different sides and i think that it is a necessity for them to succeed that they have these different traits and you know we we get hoffman and he plays this pretty reckless at times and overly oh, yeah. excitable character which is perfect like he is it is hoffman and, and i miss that's hoffman. hoffman you know watching this back oh. made me want to go rewatch rain man and some of these just just a whole slew of Dustin Hoffman incredible mm-hmm. films. Gosh, what a forgotten. Yeah, he's good. 
great. Yeah. And and then Redford, <laughs> I mean, the epitome of calm and patience mm-hmm. feels more like the grounding rod of the two and, and of the whole project. Yeah. He, he's just as ambitious. Like he wants this to happen and he need he's at, driving for it because it's the right thing and less because it's exciting. And I feel like sometimes Woodward or Bernstein kind of is being pushed forward because of the excitement and the enjoyment of the chase as much as he is the goal. Sure. And Redford kind of has to keep him in check. And I, it's just, it is an incredible relationship the way it's portrayed. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure in real life it, it must've played out similarly. So I really love them. What did you think? Well, that's why I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll strike, um, I'll kind of hit the bat first here a little bit. That's my connecting point, you know, to this film is, is, um, my connecting point was watching their relationship, you know, come together kind of that first time. There's this great scene where, um, they're kind of forced to work together and we're, we're putting his, one of his first stories together of how it should go. And he, he, it's like you, um, and, and just, and it's shot in this, you know, uh, scene where Redford's closer to you and Hoffman's a little farther away, but Redford will go take his piece of the story, bring it over to, to Hoffman and Hoffman will kind of tinker with it and, and, and wonder where it's going a little bit because they don't know each other's styles and all that. But there's this moment where um kind of, you know, Bernstein kind of does a live edit to, to Redford, to Woodward's uh, piece where he kind of mildly shows him up a little bit where he, for a moment, all that kind of reckless excitement turns into wait, this guy really knows his stuff because, um, Woodward has this, you know, like you said, the kind of that grounding character of principle. Like you can probably tell he's that guy who would bury the lead with talking about the bigger picture first before really getting to the, to the, to, to the place where excitement should be. So when, when Bernstein kind of live edits Woodward's story and they, um, it's a quick little scene where Bernstein says, well, Hey man, you know, you need to put this guy's name in the first paragraph here. And I have it right here. And this is where it should go because this is where it hooks the viewers. And this is what is the story. And, and all of his reckless excitement all of a sudden turns into purposeful excitement where you see for the first time in the film, at least for me, you see Bernstein's strength and purpose and energy and ambition and dedication all in the professional setting used the right way. And Woodward sees that and goes, wait, yeah, that guy, that guy and I can do this, you know, because he, he now has a measure that I can't do that can maybe bring the best out of me. And that moment kind of caused Woodward to kind of relent any kind of comp, you know, competition. And why is this guy here? And, um, it ends up being kind of the first bucket of concrete to that would, that would kind of put the foundation together that would be their teamwork. And I really enjoyed how the actors played out that scene, not just the, the quiet distance in terms of the typing part, but once they had engaged in that conversation and they kind of had it out, it was just kind of, it really got their ball going. And that scene just was my connecting point. That's, Rewatching it now, waiting for, you know, the things to kind of get going. That was the point where like, all right, I'm in. Let's go. Yeah. That, that, that part wrote me in. That's a perfect reason uh, for a connecting point right there is because it does it in a film that doesn't have a lot of that. That is the moment when you're like, oh, okay, cool. They have a good relationship and it's interesting. And yeah, especially when in a film, like I said earlier, where this isn't my history. Like I can't like watch it, watching zero dark 30 to give that comparison. We're the nine 11 generation. Yeah, we lived it. You know, the watch- start to finish. Yeah, right. So, I mean, when when I watch that, I, I, you know, my little hairs in the back of my neck stand up in Zero Dark Thirty because I know where the history came from, and I was sitting. Wh- where was I when that all happened? I don't have that for Watergate. My parents barely have that for Watergate because my parents are Midwestern hayseeds, so they don't care. Um, but for this, like, that's the moment where, as the journalism dork that I wanted to be, watching that happen, like, oh. I can't just be this superstar journalist. I might need some help with some other people. And that's, that's where it was the jumping off thing for me. 
Well, Patrick brought up a one word review or one word takeaway in our, the post episode, something we've started doing. And he used the word for that film of determination for the staff, the editors, and basically everybody involved in the post. It was all about determination. And that word really plays well and it fits Woodward and Bernstein too for me because they're, they're so inexperienced yet they're only kept on the story because they pursue it relentlessly. They do not stop. They do not take no for an answer. This is that classic journalism trait that we see on film that doesn't happen these days, right? We live in an, an era of instantaneous news where oh, no. we, we live in it. We live in an era that doesn't have news. It has hot takes. Yep. So the moment you have something that you think you can get clicks on or get views on, you post it, you say it, you don't take the time to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing these guys struggle with that. And they, they want to go to press. Like they want to post. They want to, they want to put this thing through and they have to go through these issues with Robards where he's telling them, listen, I need you to slow down. Like I know you're frustrated, but I trust you. There's, there's this great scene between him and them where he's let, he's, he's crossed arms and he's, he's leaning up against a desk and Hoffman is sitting on a desk and, and hmm. uh, Redford's standing beside him. And he says, how much can, he's trying to get more information. He's trying to make a decision. Do we, do we run with the story? He says, how much can you tell me about Deep Throat? Wilbur says, how much do you need to know? And he says, do you trust him? And he say, yeah. And he says, I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that baby. And it so captures it was almost my connecting point because it's, it's so captures like their dynamic throughout this process where he understands how green they are, but he, he trusts them because of what he sees in their actions, right? That relentlessness, that drive to patriotism. Some yeah. may call them anti-patriots, but really they aren't attacking the president. That's not what they're trying to do here. They're, they're going for truth and fairness, you know, and, and ex- exposing lies. So I love them in the yeah. films. I mean, they, they make this movie. Well, keep, keep that going. Uh, kind of go to your connecting point. You know, you, I think you got a good segue. Yeah. So my connecting point is another scene between those, those guys. And it was, it was very difficult for me to choose. A lot of times when we talk about our connecting points on the show, it's, we, we almost don't want to pick the obvious moment. And I feel like I'm picking the obvious moment in this one, but whatever. I don't care. I get moved by it. And so, so that's it is. Wh- that's, that's why they're classics. You know, that they have the obvious moments are the moments because at one time when they came out, they weren't the obvious moment. That's right. So it's at the end of the movie and, uh, Bradley and he's, he's come, he comes out of his house. It's seen that is somewhat shown in the post as well in a different manner if you if you think about it uh but anyway bradley comes out of his house to talk to woodward and bernstein now they've just gotten this news from deep throat they've just learned about how that their lives could be in danger there's that great scene right before this where woodward bursts into bernstein's house and they're typing to each other back and forth on the typewriter with nothing but the sound of that typewriter going to avoid making or well, and the classical music he puts on to make sure that they can't be overheard by bugs. So they are, they're paranoid. They're worried. And they go to Bradley. They tell him how big the operation is. Bradley says to them, he tells them, he's like, you must be tired. He says, you need to go home. You need to get a nice bath. 
You need to rest for 15 minutes and then you need to get back to work. He says, some tough love then. And this is where I love how their relationship comes full circle. He says, we're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you guys put us there. Nothing is riding on this except the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of our country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys screw up again, I'm going to get mad. Good night. And he walks <laughs> away. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, I have a jaw drop in this moment because yeah. he is such the epitome of the leadership style that I would I aspire to and that I think is so effective in many situations, but especially for these guys. Because once again, he is trusting in his people and their commitment to the truth. It's this is that Oscar moment for Robards in just one paragraph. This is his oh, yeah. this is his spotlight speech by um Hulk. Why I can't why am Hello? I uh-huh. yeah, Ruffalo. Ruffalo has that crazy you know, this this is yeah. that moment for him. And I just love how he ends it with if you guys screw up again, I'm gonna get mad. Good night. Because he doesn't mm-hmm. need to he doesn't need to scold them. No. He knows what they're going through, and he's just quietly reaffirming to them that he is in their corner, he is with them, and that this is worth all of the effort. So that's that's my connection. Sure. Let me segue from connecting points to kind of some of the aesthetics of the film. Um, what are some things that kind of really caught your eye, take, stepping away from performance and stepping away from feels, like in terms of just construction of film and all that, to, to get all... I'll, I'll shout out to get all Gabriel Green about the film tonight. No, you know, that's a, that's fine. I, I love, we can talk about some technical stuff more so in these episodes than we do on our show normally. Um, and yeah. this one has some stuff that I really like. The music is one. There mm-hmm. is a lack of a score in this film. Okay. Yeah. Tinge, I actually, I actually timed it. And the first oh. time that the score plays is 29 minutes into the movie. And it really? happens at this, it happens alongside this incredible tracking shot where uh-huh. uh, Bob and Carl are looking through every White House information request for the past year. There's like thousands. And mm-hmm. it's, it starts zooming out from the top of this rotunda. Oh, and yeah. That's when we get the first hint of the score. And so it's used really sparingly. It's very horn heavy and it's memorable. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's the iconic now, but it's, it's minimalistic overall. And I, I just think yeah. it, that silence says so much in this movie because mm-hmm. – it fits the style of the picture and it, it comes from that time when audiences didn't need you. They didn't need to be emotionally dragged along by rousing right. music to tell them how to feel. They, right. they I have to admit, I think, um, I think that's another good match to the post. Um, I, that like first, uh, that John Williams score is not super intrusive. Like I forgot it was there for much of the post where there's a, obviously there's a killer, killer credits, you know, and credits cut, you know, that, you know, he's got his seven minute, you know, motif, big theme, you know, to end your movie that John Williams has. But along the way, there's not a, um, there's little moments here and there, but they're not super intrusive in Williams, a score. Like I, I think I even said in my review, like it's almost unmemorable, you know, for Williams score. But I, but then I now realize that he doesn't want to be the part of the film that's memorable. This isn't Superman where you need to make a march that everyone loves. You know, this is the post you want. You just need underscore. You just need a tinge of suspense the same way David Shire did in this one. And, um, yeah, you know, um, combining where you're talking about, I loved, um, what you're talking kind of the same area where the voyeuristic angles and the transitions and sometimes those high overhead views, like when the car is getting out of the parking lot and all that, like, you know, as if like the camera is the truth floating above them kind of thing was the way I took about it. And I, um, 
another thing I really took out, took away from a technical way was the, um, kind of the asymmetrical framing and centering. Um, a lot of times we're watching a lot of scenes where it's not camera one straight on to Redford. You know, they're off to the side. There's a pillar in the way. There's a desk in the way. There's some foreground. There's some background. And, um, a lot of use of walls and foreground, which again, kind of gives you that distance and almost voyeuristic distance away from your subject where it's not in the face. You know, this isn't Les Miserables, you know? So, um, what I, I like that it was, in fact, probably the closest camera shots you get are that classical music scene you're talking about where you go right in their faces with the music in their ears and typewriters over their shoulders or those times where you shroud deep throat from, you know, from chest to, to, to top of the head in darkness. And, and that's it. Everything else is arm's length, asymmetrical. And it's really, it's really impressive to kind of just be, like you said, not, not, not showy, you know, kind of realistic. And I think it works well. There's, there's two scenes that I would, I would add to that to point out, um, that I okay. think really capture that, what you're talking about. Uh-huh. The first one happens kind of the midpoint of the film and Redford is on the phone making phone calls, uh, about trying to track down leads. And in the background, we have a whole gang of the reporters and they're gathered around a TV listening to a TV. And what's incredible about this shot, I actually had to Google this because I thought something weird is going on here from a technical standpoint. And I, I'm not going to try to explain it because this person broke it down in an incredible way. Uh, very amazing. But basically we have two pieces of the frame in focus. Yeah. And then a, a little shot, a little, little snippet in between the two in the midground that's not mm-hmm. in focus. Yeah. And it's showing us kind of the importance of both while also the scene is really impactful because we see how focused in Redford is in that moment. Woodward is trying to get leads. He's not even – some kind of news is breaking over there, and he's oblivious mm-hmm. to that. The other scene is the very last moment in the film, and it's it's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, honestly. Not from an emotional standpoint, but it's it could be. And that is – where the TV is in focus and it's Nixon's inauguration kind of playing and he's, he's taking the oath again in, in the background and we see out of focus Woodward and Bernstein typing away and the typing again with the sound editing, we hear so many times oh, yeah. in this newsroom where it's just typing or phones ringing. Here we have the inauguration playing in focus. We have the guys out of focus with, with a, a, a tightening sound of their typing getting louder and louder and louder and it just gives you this sense of this power that they are in the midst of bringing him down as he's speaking. Mm-hmm. And yet they're doing it from this, this hidden place, this, this out of yeah. focus place, right? Like he's this force that's, that's the one in the, in the picture. And yet these guys in the background who are nothing have done the hard work and are bringing him to his knees with the truth. And so I absolutely love the way the film ends and yeah, all of that cool. is cinematography. Mm-hmm. No, uh, f- last fun fact I'll throw in in this section is the New York Post office. That whole thing is a set in L.A. They did not film in a newsroom. They built that thing from scratch. Yeah. They found they found the same manufacturers of the same chairs at the same desks. They found the same old phone books and they kind of had to repurpose and repaint and recreate it. All that whole thing is a set. Um, it is not. It, it's a it's a built set. It's not a a borrowed location shot in, in some newsroom somewhere. It, it, that's, it's not, it's not in Washington. It's in LA. That's correct. Or, or just elsewhere. You know, it's well, they pretty did a amazing. Great job, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey everyone, future Aaron here. There was a piece of trivia about all the president's men that I really wanted to mention during Don and I's conversation and ended up totally forgetting about it. So I'm coming back and inserting this little clip to let you guys know what that was. The thing I wanted to mention is that the security guard 
in the Watergate scandal. His name is Frank Wills. He was a 24-year-old working private security at the Watergate office building, and he is the man who discovered the piece of duct tape on the door that eventually led to this scandal being broken and blowing up, and obviously, eventually, the resignation of President Nixon. The cool thing is that Frank Wills actually played himself as the security guard in the film All the President's Men. That's a really nice little nod to the importance of what Wills accomplished. His attention to detail in noticing that tape, not once, but twice. He noticed it once and removed it, came back 30 minutes later, and the tape was placed there again, and that's what triggered him to investigate further and discover the break-in. Those actions resulted in completely changing American history forever, and it's worth noting. Well, the last thing we're going to do on each episode, we're going to give our connecting points, which is the feel and film thing, but we're also going to give a lesson, uh, which is a every movie has a lesson thing from your website. So we're going to take an element of what you do, an element of what we do, and we're going to put them together. And so for this one, um, you're going to have to bear with me as we as we go through this series because this. I'm new to these lessons, okay? You got this. This is out of my wheelhouse. But for me, what I went with is a phrase that I've, I'm very familiar with from my history in the military, and that is trust but verify. And I feel like this proverb, which became very well known uh, when it was used by Rod- Ronald Reagan during the uh, nuclear issues with, with Russia early on, I think it – is embodied in this film by Bradley all throughout the movie because he repeatedly asks for updates. He repeatedly makes Woodward and Bernstein tell him everything they possibly can. And at the end of the day, he motivates them and then he trusts them. I think that it shows that you have to have that responsibility. I I was talking about this briefly just earlier, how we live in that hot take culture. There is very little of this that happens. There's so many news stories these days that break that do not have the diligence done. And Bradley is a very responsible editor. So what made him a great is because he required that. And it didn't mean he didn't trust his reporters. Letting someone run with something blindly does not equal trust. Having them do the work to prove it is trusting but verifying. And so I really enjoyed this. This is something that I, again, used in the Navy with my own leadership. Uh, when I was in charge of many sailors, it was something I would I would call back to a lot. Um, and it, it was hard and you had to teach them what this meant. But I think that this film is a great example of that. Look at you go. Well done. Drop that piece of chalk on the chalkboard. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, well done. Well done. Um, for me, um, my lesson or takeaway would be kind of stepping back from kind of the um, to the bigger picture of the job being portrayed. Um, so I think my lesson would be patient, skill and focused diligence, because, um, that's what it took then to do the analog journalism that's really impressively shown in the film. Um, from the rotary phones and the physical phone books, the scribbled pads of notes, the manual typewriters, what took days and weeks then would take hours and minutes now. And that blows my mind a little bit. So, and the, and you touched on this, the idea that to be almost just better at your job and, and, and perfect, not, not necessarily perfect, just, just better and good at your job. You need patient skill and focused diligence, which these men had to have to do this story the right way, to deliver the story the right way, to, um, to have it be comprehensive enough to be exactly what it had to be. The, the truth that it had to be substantiated truth because 
I mean, we're look at us now. I mean, my goodness. I mean, you have layers and layers of substantiated truth that just get dumped on by blogs and fake news and hashtags and hot takes where the hard work and diligence required of those men then, which was trusted to a large degree by by solid professionals, um, with, especially with a potentially huge story, to watch that happen in this film for two guys that were kind of early and untested in their professions is incredible. And to see that, to see what makes them what makes this story incredible and what makes the um, the creation and, and, and genesis of what this story is incredible is the patient skill and, and focused diligence it took to do it that I think is lost today. And I think that's a great takeaway that people can find out of this is, you know, not just do your job, but just do your job well. And it might just take a few more skills you're not used to using. So we can put them together and say we should trust, but have patient skill and diligence. Yeah, but, but I mean, in order to verify, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll verify, mash them They up. work so yeah. well together, so that's awesome. They do. Well, this has been great, man. What a what an awesome kickoff episode for us. Uh, this yeah, is, definitely. This has been fun. I knew it would be. We're going to wrap this one up. I, I would, I'm going to say, if listeners, if you would like to continue this story and talk to me further, you can find me on Twitter, tweeting from at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, and also from at Phelan Film. You can also come join that Phelan Film Facebook group we talked about. Once again, this is a participatory experience for mm-hmm. you. We want you to watch this movie, and at some point in the next couple of weeks, we want you to come to Phelan Film Facebook group and drop your review in that post in the comments. Tell us what you thought, or you can email it to us at feelandfilm at gmail.com. We're not going to be super sticklers about this. We just want to have your thoughts in a place where we can engage. The reason we're driving you to the Phelan Film Discussion group is because if you come post your thoughts there, then other listeners who have watched the film as well and listened to the episode, we're all going to talk about it and we're going to, yeah. we're going to have an expanded conversation and we want you to be a part of that. So that's the goal. We hope that you're willing to take this journey with Don and I. And Don, mm-hmm. why don't you tell people where they can find you and what we've got coming next? Yeah. Uh, where they can find me is a search kind of any value you want, Twitter, Facebook, otherwise. Every movie has a lesson. Um, I know my Twitter handle is Casablanca Don, which is a nice segue to where we're going here a little bit. But, uh, yeah, stay with us. You got great conversation here happening right at the moment. Add to that within the feeling film group. You guys, um, that are normal, loyal followers to us, um, do a great job of piling on and giving both of us a very good hard time that we deserve. And, uh, we welcome it with, with rock hands of bring it's and all that. So in honor of my, uh, handle a little bit of Casablanca, my all-time favorite movie is what we have next. So in honor of Valentine's Day, uh, we're going to Casablanca. Uh, Casablanca is the number three film on the AFI Top 100, and it's one of the greatest love stories ever told. I want to say it's number, I think, on the romance list. It's number two or also number three. I think number one is Gone with the Wind, and number two is Casablanca. So, yeah. And we can, we is, considered both of those. I know, um, but this one's shorter, so that's going to be okay. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, I mean, if there's a film that's really easy to talk about in love, you're going to you're going to really enjoy February. So um that's what we got, Casablanca. Really excited for this one. I just discovered this movie last year and it has done a number on my soul, as many listeners will probably be able to relate to. Once again, thank you for joining us. We hope you you've had a good time. We hope you liked your viewing of All the President's Men and this conversation. Until next time, stay positive and keep connecting with classics. <laughs> <laughs>